0: Welcome to the Seven Figure Summit podcast. I'm Scott Bywater, the founder and CEO of Copywriting That Sells. We help entrepreneurs leverage their email list, websites, funnels, and ads to get high quality leads via strategic copy written in your brand's voice. Just go to copywritingthatsells.com.au to see some of our success stories. Also, don't forget the Seven Figure Summit is always looking for guests. Simply visit podcast.copywritingthatsells.com.au to apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Seven Figure Summit, where we explore the challenges and the insights people get as they scale the summit to uh, to seven figures. And today, we've got a very exciting guest, uh, Axel Meyerhofer, and Axel is the founder of Ideal Wealth Grower. Uh, he had a successful career in the, in the Air Force and in an executive role for us, was in a, in an executive role for a software company he founded uh, back in 2005 but the great recession around 2009 introduced him to real estate and the many things it seems to allow uh, since then he's become financially free and has actually uh, now nine properties i believe as well as he's uh, he's actually living in he's, he's from germany He's been to the he used to live in the US uh but now he's living the ultimate lifestyle in Spain. So uh welcome Axel, great to great to have you here. Yeah, hey Scott, thanks for having me. Yeah, and uh, so so I guess my first question that i like to start with is when you were at the bottom of the mountain what was that like? Cuz you weren't always a successful property guy, you know, successful in business. What was it like when you were like first starting out
1: well i would say the biggest issue was that through my military career there was never really much thinking about where's the money coming from you know where do we have a place to live where do we go shop and stuff because the military is really a community in and of itself that also take care of its own and so when we got out of that, initially, it, I thought, well, you know, it can't be that different, but especially when you don't have that stable income source anymore, it gets really scary, right? And and for me, it got really scary in the sense of I have in, in my family, there wasn't really a background of business ownership or anything like that. I, I had no real background in marketing or any of those kind of things, so I tried and I guess there's a certain amount of luck always involved with it, but I tried to basically purely stand on merit. Um, and it took quite a while to get to a point to say, okay, we are now somewhat planable. I don't really want to use the word dependable, but plannable uh, income and very quickly found out it has to come from multiple uh, clients and, and income sources, because just one, didn't cut it. And even then I I thought, okay, well, if I will always have to be the one who is generating the income, I will never be able to retire. So that's how the real estate came into the picture.
0: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And you you had a consulting firm. Was that the first thing you went into after the military?
1: No, what actually happened, uh, if you want to, I can tell you a short story about the mutiny. Yes,
0: yes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) We like stories like that. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 no, I, I was thinking you would probably. So what had actually happened, I got recruited into a software company out of the military. And the founder of the company had a really good idea that I think in, in many practical ways really made sense, because there are complex circumstances, especially in training, but otherwise, where you have a lot of variables to consider to schedule something. Like if you re, uh, imagine you were running an EMT service or an ambulance service, right, you have to have the right people on the on the vehicle, they can only work certain shifts, they need to be a certain composition if the weather is bad, or if there's a big event, you need more on the ready, all that kind of stuff. So this company had developed a software tool that could consider scheduling all these eventualities, including weather, which was unheard of at the time. But The funding to get going and hire developers and all that kind of stuff came from the U.S. government, actually from the Navy. So the founder, part of the reason why he recruited me was because I had excellent connections to the German and U.S. Air Force and his funding came from the Navy. So he thought, well, if I get this guy, he can maybe help me get into the Air Force side. And I did and we did. And and that part worked. But what also happened, and I only found out like a few years into it, is that pretty much all the funding was government-based. And the U.S. government side said, well, we're helping small businesses, but only for four or five years. And then you have to figure out a way and come up with a product or services so you're self-sustainable. And I was part of an executive team of five people. And we all saw that the, the founder wasn't really pushing very hard in a direction other than getting into the Air Force, which was just another government contract um what are we actually doing to become self-sustainable and the more worried we got the more we felt okay we need to go to him he was the founder and said hey joe we really think we should get together take a few days and figure out what we're going to do to make that transition and his response was well i think it is valuable if you guys think how we can generate additional income so why don't you do it but i don't think i need to be part of it he claimed that if he were a part of it, we weren't free enough to speak to each other, which is complete bullshit, to be honest. But anyway, that's what he said. So we went away for two days and we really worked hard on it. We really did some research. We had marketing and sales and training and customer service and everybody in it, HR. And we came up obviously super biased with a plan that we then presented to him and the investors that had come on board to support the company at the time. At about 5 p.m. on the second day of our kind of little workshop thing. And 10 a.m. the next morning, he brought us back together and said, I discussed it um, with my other owners uh, that have shares in the company and we thoroughly considered it, but we're going to keep going what we have been doing. And that's why I call it a mutiny because if you sit together with basically the people who run the business and all the departments, we had like about 75 people working in the company and the owner says, no, I don't want to do what you guys want to (laughs) do. it's basically like the captain is saying okay well you guys made a suggestion of where we should say it but no we're not going to say there." so basically one by one within the next few months we all quit and that was then for me the point to say okay um what do we do now now i have to also say for your audience to know that while i was Working at that company, I was in parallel getting a master's and a PhD in leadership. So every night I went to college and university and got the theory. And then during the day, I got the opposite of the theory when I was living it in practice. Right. So, um, yeah. So that was probably part of the reason to say I don't really want to be an employee again. That didn't really work for me. I want to do something where I'm in charge and where I can apply the leadership stuff and I can basically develop something. And that's how the, Consulting work started, but it was, like I said, suddenly very scary. You know, no, no known income source and start from zero basically.
0: Yeah, yeah. And how did you how did you go through that? Because you probably all your life up until then you'd sort of been in the military, which is very secure financially, at yeah. least. Uh, the the and then you'd obviously been in another job. How did that feel jumping into I guess a little bit like jumping out of a, a plane without a parachute.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't know how it feels to jump out of a plane without a parachute. <laughs> I've never tried that. But uh, um, I did it with a parachute because we had to learn how to do that for ejection yeah. seat training. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, the thing about it is you you – find out and there wasn't at the time a whole lot of social media stuff and so forth internet for regular people was still pretty new in 2005 for me it was like okay where do you go to have a chance to get clients and there was a mystery there and i did a bunch of research and i found okay there are organizations who bring independent people we would today we would call it freelancers but at the time it was independent experts together for a project And so a friend of mine basically told me that he had just been recruited into a project uh, related to the merger of um, Merck and Sharing Cloud, two relatively big pharmaceutical companies that merged. And the project was Merck knew what it was good at and Sharing Cloud knew what it was good at. And when they compared it, they found there was kind of like uh, an area in the middle that they both kind of sucked at. And they said, OK, well, the way to overcome it, why we are now at this point where we have to reshuffle a lot of things anyway, is to bring some external experts in and give us some suggestions. And he said, oh, they're hiring all kinds of people. And, you know, you have the what what I was always known for was kind of like strategic thinking. Right. And so. He said oh you would be perfect for this, and so I knocked on the door of that company that had that contract and said hey you know my friend said you're looking for people and here I am and here my credentials and. He said okay yeah we can try it, we give you a tiny little piece of it, and so they did they actually found out that they sucked badly when it came to anything that had to do with marketing for a drug because the rules say. You have to let the the um in, in the US, the Food and Drug Administration know about everything. And so they put a, a group of nine people, really expensive people, like every hour meeting was like five grand for, for a meeting just by salary, to determine how do they actually report any changes to the to the regulators. And I give you the most egregious thing that actually ultimately got me a lot of praise is I asked them, give me an example for the most where you feel like these nine people are really needed and where you feel they are least needed. And the most needed was when they came up with a brand new thing, kind of made total sense. The least needed was, we oftentimes keep the same Christmas card. The only thing we're changing is the year, but everything remains the same. But even though we only do that minor change, because the name of the drug is on it, it still has to be recorded. And so we have nine highly paid people here to basically, approve the report for a Christmas card change. That was their explanation. And so I, this absolute genius idea that I came up with was to say, why don't you make tiers between the most and the least and the three in the middle, five tiers, and you decide how many people you actually need for that. They thought that was brilliant. I thought it was like so obvious, it was like funny. Well, but then what happened from that was basically that I thought, okay, I'm done. You know, this thing was actually right around the corner from you in Philadelphia, where Merck headquarters was. And um, I went back to Santa Barbara and thought, okay, that's good. And they paid and let's find another client. And then they called and said, hmm, we looked at this and this process of applying these tiers, we may not have told you, but there are 750 people who need to learn how to do this. Are you any, any, in any way interested in training? And I was a flight instructor, right, in the air force. So I'm like, yeah, I can do training. They said, okay, well, then why don't you come here and, and train our people step by step? And so for two years, I flew Santa Barbara, Philadelphia, Santa Barbara, Philadelphia, spent a week there and trained like 750 people in this genius five tier system. Well, and that's how, you know, from then you get a reputation. I claim among friends, I consider you friends, Scott, that at one of these trips in the middle of the night, somebody tattooed in- Invisible ink, Life Science Pharmaceutical Industry and 80% of all contracts ever
0: after <laughs> came from there. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. It's It's interesting what you talk about, like the obvious, what seems obvious to you sometimes based on your experience, your background, your knowledge is like a, is like a, Amazing insight to others. There there was a book written, it was a very short book. I think it was called Obvious Atoms. I'd love to, after chatting with you, I thought I need to revisit it and reread it again. But it gives like examples of that where like just the most obvious things are like, you know, total breakthroughs. Uh, so and, and paying attention to the, yeah, to, the to the obvious. So. But what people
1: actually said that I was supposedly particularly good at, which I had never given myself credit for was to ask questions that brought this out. because after I asked a question, it was pretty much clear for everybody in the room that it makes no sense to have nine people sitting there around the table for an hour to approve a Christmas card. But nobody had really asked them you know, what's the spectrum? So it it wasn't really the genius of the tiered system. It was just ask the right questions, and you know, you then it kind of reveals itself.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, 100 percent. It's uh, it's very much. I read a book by Socrates once, and that was his whole that, that was his whole process. Is he would just ask questions, and it's amazing when you ask questions, you you almost get to the truth, right? In terms yeah, of yeah, absolutely yeah getting that's actually
1: where coaching comes from i don't know if you have a lot of people that do coaching and mentoring on your show but uh coaching basically is is fundamentally based on what's called the socratic method where you basically keep peeling the onion until the person that you're asking questions to doesn't have an answer anymore
0: yeah yeah and it, and it makes sense from a coaching perspective because there's a saying it was actually a, a, a one of my managers at uh one of the first companies i work with He said, when you say it, they doubt it. But when they say it, they believe it. And he was talking from a sales perspective, but it's very much the same in coaching. Like if you say, hey, this is what you should do, they probably, they may have resistance to, someone may have resistance to that. But if you coach them, then if you ask a question and they come to that conclusion, Is that what you found? They're far more likely to to follow through?
1: Yeah, exactly. But also, if you don't get satisfied with the first answer, but like from the get-go, expecting that you have to go five, six, seven layers in, right? Then like after the third layer peeled away, people really have to get to the depth of the issue. Most of the time, at least in my experience, and this goes both for the investing side as well as for the consulting side, um, people are aware that there are issues or there's a problem or there's something that needs to be coped with or something. And they have in their mind one, two, sometimes three easy answers if somebody should ever ask. But when you get beyond that and say, okay, so I hear you say this, now can you explain these two components that you just mentioned that are mainly influencing whatever it is. And you, in my, in my dissertation, I actually said, when you as a coach get people to the point where they cannot quickly answer anymore, but they pause, the trick for the coach is to basically let the silence sink in.
0: Yes. You know,
1: the silence is really powerful. You just need to give it a chance. And and then you almost like if if you had like super sensitive microphones, you can hear the gears (laughs) running and, and trying to come up with something. And if you try to go one or two levels further, it can either become a breakthrough or it can sometimes also lead to a breakdown, which is needed. There's a cool book. You mentioned books. So I like books as well from a German guy called Otto Schama. It's called Theory U. And what he basically says, you want to go down all the way to the bottom of the U also uses like this idea of the eye of the needle right and so you go down there and when you're really at that bottom point then you can build up to whatever the new behavior the new approach the new idea and so forth might be and but it takes a number of layers and a number of um sometimes sessions to really dig deep enough to to
0: find that yes 100 percent. that's and what was well what was the sort of moment like you obviously got to, you were consulting. How did 2000, like that 2008, 2009, when, yeah, the, I guess we call it a, a depression or definitely a financial shock hit the, you know, almost like King Kong, you know, storming through the financial system. How did that impact you? The financial
1: crisis, in the way most people look at it, didn't impact us very much at all. Because when you have this tattoo about life sciences, that's one of the few industries that it doesn't matter really what the economy does. They keep chucking on, same like healthcare and stuff. But one thing that did impact around that time was that my wife and I realized, and I mentioned it, you know, it was not just for the first two years. It was pretty common that a lot of the work that I got was for some reason on the East Coast. And it is basically takes you pretty much two days. Now, on the way out, um, I did it oftentimes on like Sunday to to fly out. But then when you want to come back, yes, you're flying in the westerly direction. So you kind of fly five hours, but really only spending two hours on the clock. So, you know, that that works a little better. But overall, I mean, you're two hours in uh, two days in the plane for a week worth of work. And so my wife and I talked about it and started thinking about it. Wouldn't it be easier if we were living somewhere closer where you, where you can basically save at least a day or half a day of this travel time? And we looked around and, and found that the best location that we would be comfortable with, partially because we already knew it from my military time was Santa Fe, New Mexico. So we decided to move from um, Santa Barbara area to Santa Fe But one thing in that sense, how the financial crisis uh, impacted us was not for the work, but it was for the fact that the house that we were owning and living in had dramatically lost in value, right? And so that started then the question, okay, well, it would make no sense to give up because first it was a lot more valuable just until the crisis hit. So we felt like if we sell it for this price, we're giving up quarter million dollars just there. So what can we do? Well, the answer basically was, well, we have to find some creative way to buy a house while we keep the other house, you know, and we don't have a job because every bank, um, you know, is. to me, I'm still getting agitated about it, even after all these years, but they basically say, if you don't have what the Americans call a W-2 income pay stub, you'll be treated completely different when it comes to qualifying for any kind of mortgage, right? So, but that got us basically started because we decided we rent the house. And interestingly enough, most people that are uh, in some way thinking about real estate, when you have that crisis and a lot of people lose their houses because they were completely exposed with their with their mortgages, now they need a place to live. So it was not hard to find people to rent our house for a reasonably good rent income. And so we said, OK, we're just going to sit this thing out and we get the house in Santa Fe and do some creative financing and stuff. And that kind of got the ball rolling to say, hold it. That could be something that we couldn't do more of, right? <laughs> so um, yeah, that was basically the trigger. So it wasn't really that we were in financial distress in that sense, other than had we sold it, which would have been just really completely stupid, you know, and I'm glad at the time that we were smart enough to say, no, there must be a better way.
0: Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. And did that sort of start your real estate journey? Because now I guess you're living a life that, yeah, the majority of the population would only dream of, right? You've got, yeah, you know, those those nine properties, you're living in Spain, you've got like a really nice lifestyle. Was that the was that sort of the beginning, the aha moment that you you stumbled on because you're you didn't want to sell your house for less and it opened up a whole new whole new world for you?
1: Yeah, that was kind of like you asked for the starting or trigger point, and that was definitely one of them. I mean you know to, to keep it light amongst you and me and the audience. Um, guess what happened after we moved to the house in Santa Fe? What I got two new contracts, one in San Francisco and one in
0: Seattle. <laughs> 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 so, so <laughs> yeah, you
1: know, the, the universe said, Okay, I have this one here, and then you know, I need to show you that it's not all only on the east coast, but we needed to get you off your rocker first a little bit, you know. So, but. Uh, what it also did obviously now this is all on a on a little bit of a timeline so we moved and we did the creative financing which opened my eyes to say I only knew they could get a mortgage oh there's actually a way such a thing like a what's called a real estate contract that I had never heard about not in Germany and not in the US then uh, you could get basically insane amounts of credit cards to pay something and then pay back the credit cards. And when overall interest rates are reasonable, then the interest rates on the credit cards are relatively lower too, right? So it can be like a bridge. And then through that bridge, we got to a point, it took like two or three years that the economy came back. Now we're like 2013, 14, and it looks like, okay, um, this house that we have rented back there could now actually be sold for a good amount of money and for some profit. And while I was digging into it, I found out, OK, the U.S. government actually wants people to own houses. And if you have one and you say, well, for whatever reason, I don't like this one anymore. But instead of pulling it off the market, I'm just exchanging it for others. Then we don't make you pay on your profits. I'm like, OK, so we could sell this one and buy like a bunch of other ones and don't pay any taxes on the profit. That's cool, but, and you can imagine, so now first we became landlords by renting it, then we needed property management because it's way too far away from Santa Fe to Santa Barbara, like it's about a thousand miles or so. Then we basically realized, okay, there is a rule in the tax code that actually if you want to sell something, you do it smart, you don't pay taxes on the profits. We wanted that right and so we're working with more and more into it and then also friends and colleagues kept saying well what are you doing like if you and i had known each other and you say hey Axel, what you're up to i would have probably constantly told you something about buying a house selling a house exchanging a house getting financing and blah blah and so people said at some point like about like 2018 it started that people kept saying you you should make this professional you should make this official you should help other people right and Yep, and so then I really got hooked, and now I'm doing this almost exclusively.
0: Yeah, nice, nice. And and if you were to summarize, what makes your real estate strategy different to the way the majority of the population approaches real estate? What would that What would that be?
1: Um, well, for one, I would say most people don't even realize that there are businesses out there. That want to do everything surrounding a property that you own for you as a service. And in, in the US, we call that turnkey providers. So, in a nutshell, to tell you what that is, is basically a company that says, okay, I find the ugly duckling in a nice neighborhood and I renovate it from the studs, new electric, new plumbing, anything that needs to be done, make it a nice house, put it on the market at a price like all the other similar houses at that state would cost. And then you or I as investors come along and say, okay, I buy this house from you. If the price that you're asking is the price that the bank is seeing as value so that it needs to be evaluated and appraised. Let's say they offer it 450000 dollars The appraiser comes and says, it's 155. The bank says, okay, now I can give you a mortgage because they have confirmed it's the value. And then that same company says, okay, if you buy this from us, we offer also to manage it from you, for you. We put the tenants in we collect the rent we do everything and for that you give us eight to ten percent of the rent and we do everything so now you're saying okay i'm sitting in santa Fe, i'm sitting in seattle i'm sitting even you might be sitting in i don't know sydney or melbourne or something like that and you can have a house somewhere in the midwest of the united states and once a month you talk to them for half an hour and everything else is done for you wow and that was like,
0: boom.
1: I got to do this, and then people said, "What? That really exists?" I said, "Yeah, I'm doing it. I'm literally. I mean, right now, I'm spending about between two and three hours a month talking to my property management people. And so from my own portfolio, that's all I do. Wow. Then maybe add another two hours that my wife does to pay the mortgages and and keep the rest of the money.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's uh. That's cool. Why do you think more people haven't discovered it or don't? Do it? Like, what do you think holds people back? Is it is it that they just haven't thought of it or asked enough questions in the Socratic method to find it? Or is it fear over perhaps risk? Like what, what do you think holds people people back?
1: Well, there are a couple of layers. The first layer is that people throw uh complicated and complex in the same bucket.
0: Mm.
1: The, the process of purchasing real estate and let other people run it and manage it for you is complex, but it's not complicated, mm. right? I mean, basically, you build and, and for me, I'm even trying to simplify it further by saying, okay, if you join Ideal Wealth Grow, if you come to me and allow me to be your mentor, then you don't have to find these organizations. I already have them. I have six different ones in different places in the United States. Right. So and I own properties with them and our other uh, tribe members, as I call them, that have come on board over the last few years, own properties with these. So we are only really building our network and, and, and doing that. So you don't have to find them. But most people don't even know that they exist. So that's one thing. And they assume because the media always says real estate investing is only for rich people, right? which right now I can tell you, like we have deals that we are basically closing on right now where you buy a house for somewhere in the $75,000, $85,000 US dollar range. It is rented for $1,100 and you basically, your down payment is between 12 and 15,000, right? And if somebody says, okay, I want to do investing, but I can't afford 12 to 15,000, then probably not quite ready for investing yet.
0: Wow, wow. Yeah, that, that's, in Australia, you need a lot more than 12 to 15,000. That's, um, that's amazing, yeah.
1: Well, I mean, I think if you go long enough towards Red Rock, there comes a point where you can <laughs> you know, so And, and I'm, I'm using this as a little bit of a funny an- analogy, because in the United States, if you look at uh, the economic and, and population distribution, it is not as extreme as Australia. But,
0: yes.
1: you know, when, when I look at the houses that I just described as one of the examples, That same house, anywhere in California, Washington, Florida, New York, or so forth, is 10 times that much for price. What you don't get, and which is really where the trick is, and why people, I always hope, if if, if somebody says, you know, what should they know about you? Is I only look for performance, where everybody else only says, what's the price, right? So if the price is 10 times as much, performance would only be equal if you could get 10 times that rent. So now we're going back and say, okay, I have this $85,000 house. I get $1,100 in rent. If you find an $850,000 house, is anybody going to pay you $11,000 in rent? No. If they could afford $11,000, they would buy themselves a house and not rent from you. So that's that's the idea and the the fundamental things about performance. You need to disconnect where you are and where your investments are. And we are very easy and, and, and willing to do this when I say, okay, you wanna buy Microsoft, you wanna buy Amazon, you wanna buy any kind of Australian big time company, it doesn't matter where they are on and which stock market exchange they're being traded. But in our minds and in the media, and I don't know, in our upbringing, we're being told if you invest in real estate, it needs to be so that you can go there and more the lawn or something like that. And yes. as soon as you get that out of your mind and you say, okay, this is a business, there are people who run the business of making properties available, freshly renovated, so they can manage them for you and get a cut of it. And you'll yes. be the one who owns them. As soon as you get that, then you can really easily come into, I invite you come into my arms. Let me help you get, you can pick whichever one you want. And I have all the connections, all the relationships for funding, insurance, uh, property management, turnkey providers, and anything and everything you would need not because I'm somehow special, but because I'm using them and I found them and developed them myself and now everybody else can benefit from it.
0: Yeah, wow. Wow, that's uh, that's amazing. What do you think, like, because most people want to crack that seven-figure mark, they want to create financial freedom, all of that sort of thing. What do you think holds them back mentally? Like, you seem to have like just listen to your your story today you seem to have that ability to ask questions and go deeper you've got a, cur- yeah, a curiosity about life and business and you know you've you, you you and you'll and you'll go that extra mile you don't get stuck but what what do you think mentally what do you think holds people back mentally
1: well, I wrote actually a, a mindset manual about that because I think it's mindset as the short answer. And one layer below is I believe the vast majority of people are conditioned to be victims these days.
0: Mm, yeah.
1: And I want to get them to be, and what I'm preaching and teaching and mentoring and coaching and everything is to become the creator of your own future.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. 100%. No, I, I love it. So, and if someone wants to get in touch with you and because I'm sure you know, there'll be people who listen to this and particularly some of the things you said about real estate, and they want to get in touch with you and find out more about what you do and how you can perhaps help them. How what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Yeah, I mean, if they see um, this on video, they can see our the name of our organization is Ideal Wealth Grower. And so it's idealwealthgrower.com. And if you go to the website you know, like if you spend 10 seconds, it pops up and say, book a call. And if you wait another 30 seconds, you get hooked up on the lead newsletter. So that's basically the easiest way. I mean, you can also put Idea Wealth Grower in Google or online or anywhere. We, we're pretty much on all the social media, LinkedIn. Um, we own yeah more, most social media platforms. You find us on Apple with our podcast and so forth. So Idea Wealth Grower or idealwealthgrower.com is basically the easiest way. And one thing, if you allow me, Scott, I want to say, because sometimes people think this is only impossible for people in the United States. But that's not true. Like we have clients from Germany. We have clients from the U.K. We don't. I don't think we have anybody from um, from Australia yet, but there, it is not that this kind of investing is limited to, to people in the U.S., you can basically be anywhere, and your asset, like I said earlier, can be in the best-performing places in the US.
0: Yeah, no, that's uh, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for yeah, sharing your your wisdom, your story, and uh, and sharing it so openly and and generously uh, today, Axel. I really really appreciate you uh, coming on to the, the the Seven Figure Summit podcast.
1: Yeah, thank you, Scott, for having me. It's a great pleasure to speak to your audience.
0: Scott Bywater here, and thank you for listening to the Seven Figure Summit podcast. If you're a successful seven-figure entrepreneur who'd like to share your journey on this podcast, please visit podcast.copywritingthatsells.com.au. If you got something out of this interview, I'd love it if you could share this episode on social media. Likewise, if you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them to let them know about the show and include the hashtag Seven Figure Summit. There's nothing I love more than seeing your posts and guest suggestions. Now, we're regularly putting out new episodes and content. So to make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to my team and I. If you'd like to connect, go to copywritingthatsells.com.au or follow me on LinkedIn or Instagram under Scott Bywater. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.